believe last week we talked about the gates of hell and how the church is forcefully advancing and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And we were talking about revival, remember? Yeah? That was a long time ago, I can see. All right. Well, tonight I want to talk about that because we talked about last week how the uh, gates of hell were a defensive mechanism, right? Gates are a defensive mechanism. And uh, how the church is supposed to be on the attack and how often we as the church fail to remember that. Often we as the church, we get so caught up in how we're under attack, especially here in the States, especially right now. We talk about how this uh, country was founded on godly principles and how morality is just on the decline in this country. And if we're not careful, we get tend to get in this this perspective where we look at, at our country and where it's going and all the mora- uh, decline in morality and we think and we say the church is under attack. Uh, and, and in all reality, we're not under attack. We should be the ones doing the attacking. Hell is, was, was, should be scared of the advance of the church. And if the church and the morality around us is declining, it means the church is being lazy. It's being dormant. We're not doing our job. And, and especially here in the States, we have, we have this tendency in the States to take the gospel, and this is what we were talking about Wednesday night, adults, sorry if you weren't there. We have a tendency in this country, uh, or we've had a tendency, to take the gospel of the Bible, water it down in a tremendous way, and mutate it into something that we like more. So, for example, in, in Mark, uh, Mark 10, Luke 14, or Matthew 14, uh, Luke 9, I believe it is, uh, you see Jesus challenging all these people that are coming to him saying that they want to follow him. And he challenges them. And one, he sa- you know, one comes and says, I want, to, I want to follow you, but can you just stay here long enough? My father just passed away. Let me go bury him. And Jesus says, no, let the dead bury the dead. If you're going to follow me, follow me now. We see another one where a rich young man comes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus, he says, what do I need to do to follow you? And Jesus says, obey the commandments. He says, I've obeyed every single commandment out there. I am, I am there. And Jesus says, well, this one thing you lack then. He said, go sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And the young man turned and walked away sad because he had many things. And so Jesus here is telling this young man, hey, you want to follow me? That's great. You need to be willing to give it all up. Everything you have, everything you own, it needs, it needs, needs to be nothing compared to following me. And, um, and yet again, we see Jesus come, uh, people come and approach Jesus and say, God, we want to follow you. We want to follow you, Jesus. We want to follow you. Just let us go say goodbye to our mother. And he says, no, if, you don't, if a man doesn't hate his father and mother and brothers for the sake of following me, then he cannot be a follower of mine. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, listen, to follow me is going to cost you everything. And somewhere along the way in the church in the United States, we've transformed the gospel from that to just a mere mindful, intellectual belief. And the danger in that then is that because the gospel doesn't cost us anything, we think that the gospel is about us. We would never say that intellectually, but in reality, many of us in the church in the States, we practice a man-centered Christianity where God is merely a God that exists to, to live make my life blessed and to make my life better. And if anything ever gets bent out of sorts in our life, we have a tendency to get angry with God, to begin to lose faith in God and question God. How often 
uh, Kim and I have been really talking about this because Chip Blicker is going through a horrible time right now. Horrible time. And we've been praying for Chip Blicker. And, uh, and one of the awesome things about the body of Christ in a time of crisis like this is to see how many people get on their knees and pray. It's been an amazing thing. And if you follow, if you look on, on the Facebook, uh, they had people post where they're praying from. And there are prayers literally all over this globe for Chip Blicker. And that is an amazing thing. That's the body of Christ in action. That is the body on the offensive like we should be. But at the same time, as we're talking about this and thinking about Chip and thinking about my sister a few years ago, the question came to my mind is, well, we are begging God to come and heal Chip. And Chip is a believer. And if, if God desired to take Chip home today, Chip would spend eternity in heaven. There are over a billion people in this world today that are on a fast track to hell. And the question that Kim and I have been bouncing around is, and not to take away from the church praying for Chip, but why is it that when, when a loved one of ours is affected, we turn to God? We go on the offensive. But when the people that we don't know halfway around the world are on a direct path to hell, we lack zero desperation in our prayers for them. It's amazing how the body comes together when it's personal, right? When something close to home affects us, we get on our knees and we go to God and we get on the offensive. But, but with the normal daily stuff that's going on out there, not so much. But the word tells us that Christ would leave the flock for the one that is lost. The Bible tells us that it is God's desire that no, not one would perish. And God cares about every soul on this planet, not just Chip. So I'm not saying we shouldn't be praying for Chip. But I'm saying that same desperation, that same zeal for which we pray for Chip, we should be praying for God's glory to be made known in all the earth. You follow me? It's just an example or a symptom, I think, rather, of where the church has gotten in the States. And I, I, I want to talk about that a little bit. If you brought your Bibles, turn to Joshua chapter 6. When we were talking last week about about the church forcefully advancing and the gates of hell not being able to prevail against the church of the Lord. It reminded me of a, of a time in the Bible where, where God's people were forcefully advancing and they came across the city of Jericho with the walls. Y'all remember the story? Seen the VeggieTales episode? With all the Slurpees, it's good stuff. Remember the story? The Israelites had come into the promised land, and uh, the first city they came to was Jericho, or one of the first cities they came to was Jericho, and, uh, and God tells them to walk around the city, march around the city for seven days, once a day for seven days. And, and he tells them to go with the priests carrying seven trumpets in front of the people, or in front of the ark, which was in front of the people, and to march around the city. And no one was to say a word the first six days. And so they would come and they'd march around the walls of Jericho, blow their trumpets, and leave and go back to the camp. And the seventh day they go and they were supposed to do it seven times. And on the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpet, then the nation of Israel was supposed to shout. And remember what happened. The walls came tumbling down, right? 
That's a beautiful story. It's one that most of us should remember from when we were way young. Um, but one of the things that we, we don't look at often when we tell the story of Jericho is what happened just prior to that. So I want us to look at that tonight. So if you've got your Bibles, Joshua, we're going to start in chapter 5, verse 13. Let me set up the context here, okay, if you read chapter 5. The Israelites had just come into the land of Canaan, the promised land. Remember that Joshua was one of 12 spies. He was one of only two out of the 12 before the wandering in the wilderness that had gone into the promised land and come out. And, and when they gave report to Moses, 10 of the 12 spies said, no, the people in there are giants. If we go in there, we're going to get crushed. Forget this. Let's go back to Egypt, whatever. And only two of the spies, Joshua and Benjamin, looked at Moses and said, no, God gave us this land. He told us it's ours. Let's go take what is ours. The, the, the grapes... The cluster of grapes that they brought out of there was so big that two men had to carry it on a pole between the two of them. I don't know if you've ever seen grapes. If you go to the grocery store, a little cluster of grapes is about yay big. But in the promised land, when the spies came back, they had two men with a pole from shoulder to shoulder having to carry this cluster of grapes. That's how bountiful the promised land was. And yet, even in spite of that and God telling them it was theirs, they decided not to. And so God gets mad. Remember, he kills the ten spies immediately strikes them down, sends the nation of Israel to wander in wilderness for 40 years. 40 years. So here we find ourselves. Moses has now died. He saw the promised land, never went in. Joshua would lead the, the, God's people into the promised land. And here we are in chapter 5. They've just crossed the, the Jordan River, just entered into the promised land. And in chapter 5, for the first time, the night before they march on Jericho, the first time they eat the produce of the land. And the Bible says this in chapter 5. The Bible says that when they ate for the first time, ate to their fill, that God the next morning ceased sending manna. Now this is a momentous occasion. Okay, For the Israelites, this is about the, up there with you and I when we think of Christ coming back and us going to heaven. You know, when you think of heaven, you think of, hey, no sin, no suffering, no sorrow, no sickness. You know, I, I picture my mansion up there. You know, I'm not going to have a dog. I'm going to have like two polar bears walking around, you know, maybe a lion. Um, I'm going to be, you know, roaming around in like a golden chariot because why have a Rolls Royce or something like that when you can run around in a chariot that flies, you know, with burning horses like Elijah got taken up into carrying you around. I mean, it's just awesome stuff, you know. And we think of that and we think, man, that's going to be the promised event. Well, here it is. The nation of Israel had just entered in the promised land. And for the first time in 40 years, they stopped eating manna. Think about this. There's an entire generation of people that have been born in the desert who some of those 40-year-olds or younger, all they had eaten to this point is manna with the occasional quail or something when the people griped enough and God sent something. So think about that. Think about you being 40 years old and three meals a day, every meal, you're eating the same thing. And you cross the river into the promised land and you're eating grapes, clusters of grapes that are about as tall as I am. You're eating fruits that are the size of babies' heads, apples and stuff. Think about that. These people have entered the promised land. Can you imagine that? Yes, apples the size of baby's heads. No, no, no. Baby's heads, because in Chile they have them, and they're called, they're called baby head apples. 
because they're this big. You know, you have your delicious reds, you have your greens, whatever. In Chile, they have a variety of apple called a baby head because it's this big. So that's what I think about when I, when I think about the fruit in the promised land. Imagine, if you will, for 40 years eating the same thing, you cross the river and you get to feast on milk and honey and produce. The Bible just says they ate of the produce of the land. Imagine that. It, um, we're talking like they're in heaven. They're in heaven. It is as good as it gets for them. They've wandered the desert for 40 years, and now I'm eating a grape for the first time in my life. Oh, man, this is good stuff. And Joshua is the one who's led them here, and we see Joshua in a moment. We're going to see Joshua, and we're going to realize that Joshua goes through a moment much like the church in America has gone through in a single moment. Joshua goes from being this devoted follower of Christ to succumbing to the temptation of thinking that he has arrived, that he is the big cheese. He is the man. And we can see why, because, because God has blessed him. God has lavished him with his favor. And J Joshua now has led the people into the promised land for decades. Moses led them in the wilderness. And now Joshua is the man that has led them into the promised land. And they've eaten of this produce. They've heard about it. Their parents, their grandparents have told them stories of God delivering them out of Egypt to give them this promised land. And here it is. And they feast on this. And Joshua starts to get the big head because he is the man. He's arrived. He's God's chosen one. He's led them here. And we see this at the end of chapter 5. And, I, and now we're going to read it. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up. And saw a man standing in front of him with a d drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, we would just read that and think that's great, but... Let, let's think about this. It's dinner time. It's supper time. They've just feasted on this wonderful feast. It's dark. I don't know about you, but when I'm walk, wandering around the dark, uh, especially if I'm out in, in outside in the land and I'm just wandering around, I'm off by myself, the camp is all going to sleep, and I come across somebody that's like in full armor with a sword or whatever, um, my first reaction is going to be to freak, Right? I mean, have you ever been walking in the dark and, like, turned around and somebody was there you didn't know was there or whatever? What's your reaction? <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah, you freak. You're just like, oh, my goodness, wait, wait a minute, where'd you come from? And Joshua doesn't have this reaction. Joshua's got his chest puffed out, and he walks up, and he sees this guy, and so he walks up to him and says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? In other words, I'm the man. You better recognize. That's the... That's the inferred reaction he's getting. Joshua commands this man, who are you? Do you not know who I am? Why aren't you in camp? Are you for us or are you for the enemy? Because if you're from the, for the enemy, it's about to get nasty. I'm about to cut you down, whatever, you know. The Bible doesn't go into tremendous detail. But, but his response to running into this guy indicates Joshua's attitude. And his response after hearing who this person is reflects his attitude. 
Because Joshua comes to humble this person. Joshua comes to say, I am Joshua. I am the one with the favor of the Lord. I have led my people into this land. If you are for us, you need to recognize who I am. Or if you're not, I'm about to cut you down. And instead, the person turns and says this. Listen, I don't belong to your army or to that army. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, who's the, who commands the armies of the Lord? Jesus. Jesus commands the army of the Lord. Remember in Revelation, when he comes back, who's going to be riding on a horse bringing the heavenly hosts behind him? Jesus. Jesus is the commander of the army of the Lord. It's not a commander of the army of the Lord. It is the commander of the army of the Lord. And Jesus basically presents himself to Joshua here. Joshua comes to Jesus and says, who do you think you are? I'm Joshua. Why haven't you saluted me? Why haven't you recognized me? Are you for us or are you for the enemy? As he's got his hand on the sword, I can just picture it now. I mean, he's just fattened himself on produce after 40 years. He's high in the sky. Joshua is it. He has arrived. And he comes and confronts Jesus of all people. And Jesus turns and says, listen, I'm not from your little army or from that little army. I command the armies of the Lord. And here's how we know where Joshua's attitude was. Because what is Joshua's immediate reaction? Boom. <laughs> Face in the sand. And he asks, what do you, what do you have for me, Lord? Notice, notice the difference in response. Hey, you, you with us or you with them? Uh, Because I command these people, the Israelites, so if you're not with us, you should have come to me and saluted me. Who do you think you are? Who are you? I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Oh, sorry, Lord. Lord. Joshua recognizes. As we talk about revival, it's important, as we talked about last week, we need to understand who we are. And whose we are. We need to recognize our place. Last night I had the privilege to go and preach a revival message for a bunch of international and refugee pastors from the Metroplex. Uh, it was an awesome time. I felt like I was out of the country again. You walk into this room and it's it's 30 or, last night it was, they were kind of low in numbers. It was 30 or 40 excuse me, internationals. There were Pacific Islanders, Africans, Koreans, Filipinos. I was the only American in the room. It was awesome, man. Um, if you've never been at a prayer service with, with people from around the world, you ought to go sometime because they know how to pray. Okay? When we pray, we pray God is great, God is good, God, we thank you for this food. Amen. When, when you go into international countries, and especially countries where they, the church has uh, been under persecution or the church has had to pray for its survival, and you walk into a room, they don't pray, God is great, God is good, God, we thank you for this food. They pray, Jesus, thank you for this nourishment that you've provided today. Let it come and let it flow through our bodies. Let it heal our bodies. Let it, let it fulfill its purpose. Lord, make the proteins from the food that we have taken. Let them feed our muscles that are tired and weary. God, you are Lord, and so we thank you that you have given us this meal because we know that tomorrow we might not have another meal. You are the provider of all meals. Jesus, thank you. And the Horoam is saying, amen, amen. It's an awesome thing. 
It's not a charismatic thing. It's, uh, it's just a different culture thing. It is a church that has had to rely on the Lord, that knows deeply and intimately an aspect of the Lord that the Church of America has gotten far away from because we rely on our pocketbooks. We rely on our education. We rely on our rights as Americans, right? And most of these other countries, they don't have rights, they don't have formal education, and they don't have pocketbooks. So they rely on the Lord. And so it was a beautiful thing. It was, it was incredibly fun. And I preached this message to them. And as we were talking and praying for tribes and nations of the world and our communities and our churches, uh, my message to them was basically this. Listen, if, if we want revival to break out, if we want God to break out in our midst, if we want to reach the nations with the gospel, the first thing we need to understand is this, is that we as Christians have very little to offer God. Very little. In fact, Psalms 46.10 says this. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in all the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. And that, those two words, be still, are one word in the Hebrew, and it's rafa. Rafa. Rafa literally means to sink down, to quit, to withdraw, not just be quiet. Picture, if you would, that image, to sink down. You know, I think when I, when I was seven, I was uh, playing at the swimming pool. My parents had told me never to go past the little buoys up there because it was too deep. And I didn't listen to them one day. And I went over there, and there was this lifeguard that was over there. And I was seven, and I was just like uh, whatever that movie is, Sandlot. You know, there was this lifeguard, and somebody dared me to go talk to her. And so as a seven-year-old little pipsqueak, I'm sure, with buck teeth and curly hair out to here or whatever, I go walking around to the deep, and, you know, and I'm like, hi, <laughs> you know, whatever. And so she started talking to me or whatever, and I was, I was it after that. Well, uh, the next day we went to the pool again, and some of my friends didn't believe that I would talked to her, so I was going to go show them again. So I went over there, and as I was talking to her, her boyfriend comes up. Now, her boyfriend was some punk high schooler, football player probably thought he was all that, guys. This idiot decides to push me in the pool because I'm talking to his girlfriend, right? You know, So he just comes up and just kind of goes, bunk, and in I go. And I'm drowning. I mean, I don't know how to swim. And so I'm just like, bloop, 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 and, the, you know, and the water's going on me. And I don't know how to swim. I don't have the knowledge on how to swim. But everything within my being and my humanity was fighting to reach the surface. Now, eventually, she got off and help me out. And I think he just wanted her to get off her bench, you know, and so she did. She got in there and saved me. But I say that to say this. It is in our human nature to try everything we can to achieve, to strive. Psychologists call it a fight or flight response. Be still. Rafa literally means to let go, to sink down. In other words, when, when it comes to revival, when it comes to spiritual awakening, when it comes to God spreading his glory to the nations, the people groups, and to all the earth, as humans, our response is to not think naturally. Our response is to let go. Paul puts it this way, God will use the foolish things of the wise to shame the wise. Right. God doesn't God doesn't want to reach the nations in a natural way. God wants to reach the nations in a supernatural 
way. God doesn't want to reach the church in the United States and bless it in a natural way. He wants to do it in a supernatural way so that he receives all the glory. And that's what I told this group last night. I was like, hey, as we pray, as we organize, and as we grow, because they've just started this prayer gathering in the Metroplex to reach every people group in the Metroplex of Dallas-Fort Worth area, let's do it with an attitude of sinking down. Let's rafa. Let's quit. Let's withdraw. Let's let God be God, and let's just be his humble servants. Let's die to ourselves and let the Lord be Lord. As we pray, let's pray that. Then God will be exalted amongst the nations. He will be exalted in all the earth. It's counterintuitive. But it's necessary for revival. And here's Joshua walking up to Jesus, about to go into Jericho. I'm sure Joshua's walking around out the camp, and he's strategizing how they're going to overtake the city of Jericho. And he's thinking militarily, and he's thinking humanly. If we build these batarams, we can go and we can break down the gates. You've seen it in every movie out there. Break down the gates, and then we can storm through the walls, and we'll take the people. How are we going to do this? Let's think. If I put this many people here, this many troops here, this kind of thing. And in that, in that, Jesus comes to him, and he sees Jesus, and he's like, Hey, you for us, for our enemy. No, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Sorry, Lord. Poof. But if Joshua had not had that humbling experience, if Joshua had not rafad, sunk down, withdrew from his attitude in the Lord, then God's plan to march around a city for seven days would have been one that he laughed off. Man, I shouldn't have eaten that much fruit for the first time in 40 years. That didn't set well. I had a wicked dream last night. But God wanted to prove a point. God was not only leading them into the promised land, he was changing a season of their life. They had just come out of a 40-year season where God had provided, provided for them with manna, miraculously. Think about that. God was sending food from heaven every time they needed a meal. But after 40 years, the people of God, they got tired of the same old move of God. Sound familiar? We do the same thing. But God was good to his people, and he led them from that season into another one. He brought them into the promised land, and he gave them produce so large that it, was, it just blew their minds. God ended this season, and he began another. But when he began this season, he began it reminding them who he was. He brought them in. They ate of the lush produce, and then he confronts the, their leader and says, Hey, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Remember who you are. You are nothing. And Joshua recognizes that. And then as if God was saying, let me demonstrate the same principle to all my people. Tomorrow, y'all are going to go to Jericho, and you're going to march around the city, and you're going to blow seven trumpets, and you're going to come back to camp. And you're going to do that six more times. And on the seventh day, you're going to go, and you're going to march around it seven times. And at the end of the seventh time around, when they blow the trumpet, you're all going to shout. Think about that. Joshua went from being the man, I've led, I've got God's favor, I've led the people into the promised land, to going back to camp, getting his generals around and saying, this is what we're going to do. They must have thought he had lost his mind. Think about that. Joshua put his reputation at risk for the Lord. But he was obedient. 
And because they knew he had the favor of the Lord, they were obedient. And because they were obedient, the people followed. And because the people followed God's ridiculous plan, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, killing the soldiers in the process. And God manifested himself to the people. And God took them out of the season of manna and wandering into the promised land. And the first thing he did is he said, he reminded them, he said, I am the Lord your God. I will share my glory with none other. And he sent word to every other tribe and nation within the promised land that the people of God are coming. They didn't even have to raise a sword in Jericho. Jericho came tumbling down at the sight of God's people. All they had to do was shout. And Jericho was annihilated. When we talk about revival, it is important for us to recognize who we are and who he is. And then when we do that, it's important for us to be obedient. Revival is contingent on us recognizing the gospel, that we are nothing, that we need him. And then it is contingent on us, uh, on our understanding of the gospel, it is contingent on us walking in obedience. Second Chronicles 7 says, If my people will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, and we'll go through the rest of the verses we talk about revival. Those are the first two things. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, repent and turn to obedience, it's crucial for revival. As we talk about revival in this church, students and adults, if you are, if you are coddling disobedience to the Lord, if you're living in an area of your life that you know is not what God wants for you, but you choose to live in that anyways, you can forget experiencing revival in your life. Revival is not a supernatural act of God where he comes and he zaps you and suddenly you just are a new person. Revival is a series of events, most of them on our part. Revival is a renewal. It's a rebirth. It's us recognizing and reminding ourselves of who he is and who we are not. We must humble ourselves and we must turn from our wicked ways. And many of us in this room have many things in our lives that we need to humble ourselves from and turn from our wicked ways. And for the states, the church in the states to have revival, we need to start by humbling ourselves. It was so convicting last night to pray with all these pastors from these different congregations and different people groups and to hear them pray for the United States, for our country, and to thank the Lord for being in our country. But one of the most convicting things was to hear them pray about the idolatry that exists, not in our country, but the idolatry that exists within our church. And asking God to help remove the blinders from the church's eyes that we might turn from our wicked ways. And they're dead right. I mean, they're dead on. We as a church, we need to reflect. We need to look inward. And we need to say, in what areas are we puffing our chest out like Joshua? We at First Church Carrollton. We go on five or six mission trips a year. 
We go all over the nations. We've got a mission vision. Or we at First Church Carrollton, we've got an awesome youth group. I mean, people, youth publicly confess some sin, and, and we're tight, and, and we're, we're getting to know the word. We at First Church Carrollton, we go and we, we lead other youth in their camps. We at First Church Carrollton, man, our youth lead worship, and, and it's awesome. I mean, it's better than most church, church praise teams. We at First Church Carrollton, we've had, in the past 30 years, we've had three, four youth pastors. I mean, we break every mold. We at First Church Carrollton, we've got two pastors, Richard and Kiva, and, and we're growing. We at First Church Carrollton, we, we have all contemporary music, you know. So, I mean, we're, we're shaking and baking. First Church Carrollton, we have two worship pastors. That's going to get us nowhere. No, we need to be a church. We need to be a youth group. We need to be individuals that are saying, <laughs> Lord, less of me and more of you. We need to be putting our face in the dirt and saying, Lord, what is your will for us? And when we do that, and we turn from our wicked ways and start following in obedience to what he asks us to do, and we do a few more things that we'll talk about in weeks to come, we'll see revival in our midst. And revival breeds spiritual awakening. Revival is when God's people remember their first love, are reborn. And spiritual awakening is what happens to the lost around a people group of God that are in revival. Because when we remember whose we are and we experience a rebirth in Christ and a fresh move of the Spirit, then the lost people around us cannot help but want what we have. And they start getting saved left and right. That's what our nation desperately needs. That's what our church desperately needs. That's what this youth group desperately needs. That's what we as individuals desperately need. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are God. I thank you that you long to move in us and through us, that we don't have to ask you to do that. That is your desire. So I pray that you would, over the next few weeks, continue to help us draw into who you are, focus, that we would remember whose we are, that we would experience true revival in our hearts, in our souls, in our youth group, our church, and in this community. And in this world, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I pray. Amen. Amen. I want to clarify one thing from Wednesday night, and then we're done. Wednesday night when we talked about the gospel, the true gospel of the Bible, and how Christ had asked us to abandon all these things. Christ is asking us to have an attitude of abandonment to the world. That does not, that's not synonymous with abandoning the world and embracing church things. So by that, I mean this. For example, I know several of you like are on volleyball teams, basketball teams, football teams, that sort of thing. I'm not talking about you going home and saying, Mom, I, I'm just not going to do my homework tonight because I'm abandoning all that. I'm following Christ. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? You can't, you can't say, 
Mom, Dad, uh, Sundays and Wednesdays, I'm not going to do homework anymore because uh, I'm going to church, and church has to be first. Wednesday night, Sunday night, Sunday morning, those things are not always synonymous with Christ. You follow me? Some of you, you, you know, I, I know some of our kids are at a volleyball game Wednesday night or are going to be and can't make it to some of our stuff. And, they, you know, so they came up to me and they're like, I, 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 and I was just like, hey, take it easy because God might want you to live out the gospel on your volleyball team. You don't have to be here every time the doors are open to be obedient to Christ. Does it make sense? You following me? Okay. So we're talking about spiritual discipline issues, not about. Now, the same doesn't work for, you know, you can't go out and date a non-believer and say that it's okay because I'm being the gospel. <laughs> no. World, you know, the word is very specific in saying do not be unequally yoked. But, but to say, well, I can't 